Hello again to our repeat listeners, and welcome if this is your first time listening to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We are so glad you chose to join us today to gain insight into global issues, how they affect the state, as well as what impact the state is having on the world. My name is Tim Horgan, your host and guide in this journey. Before we dive into this month's episode, I want to take a moment to provide some insight into how we chose this month's interviews. As we are all aware, protests have been sweeping the globe in support of racial justice after the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others. It is important for us all to be aware of and try to do our part in bringing about the change that will ensure the rights of all, both here in the US and around the world. When one group of people cannot fully enjoy their legal rights, it is a danger to everyone, as it becomes easier to strip any group of their rights. The interviews in this episode explore the global protest movements and how the U.S. protests fit into the wider narrative of people's demands for change in other countries. We also speak with a local organization working on educational, gender, and employment equality in Kenya. I hope that these interviews will inspire you to think differently about the global struggle for equality, how it does actually have an effect on your life, and what you can do to support change, even if it is just within yourself. have been rocking the world over the past several years. From the Arab Spring to the protests for racial equality right here in the U.S., it seems that democracies are experiencing a new challenge from their citizens. Each country is reacting differently, with some accepting the changes asked for, while others become more authoritarian and crack down on the protests themselves. What is behind this new rash of protests, and how does it compare to previous times? Also, what impact is the coronavirus pandemic having on people's ability to gather and demand change? I spoke with Bill Wanlund and Don Bencrati about a recent article they published on the topic. I began to wonder, you know, what is it in the atmosphere that prompted outbreaks of anger and dissatisfaction all over the place? That is Bill Wanlund, a former Foreign Service officer who wrote about this for CQ Researcher. His article on global protests came out one month before the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing protests around the world for racial justice. Bill joined me via Zoom to discuss these protests and the power of people to make change around the world. He also invited Don Brancati, an associate research scholar at Yale University, who contributed to his own research. My interest in the topic derives from a sort of fulfillment I feel from watching individuals who are either marginalized or discounted in society, outsmarting and outmaneuvering and challenging those who are privileged. Late last year, Bill became interested in writing an article about global protests because... The news was peppered with stories of protests all around the world, Hong Kong, Chile, Algeria, Lebanon, Bolivia, and dozens of other countries. As the protests here in the U.S. continued to build steam, as well as gain momentum around the world, I began to think about how the U.S. is not that different from the rest of the world. Our country certainly has its own set of issues to deal with, and it is not immune from people taking to the streets in order to make their voices heard. 
Also, I found it quite interesting to see so many protests in different countries that started off in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement here in the U.S. I used to be a Foreign Service officer, and as a result, I've always been attuned to the image of the United States in our audiences and our hosts overseas. And when the protests over the killing of George Floyd first spilled over our borders and Black Lives Matter causes taken up in Europe and Asia and elsewhere, it seemed to be people genuinely outraged over an American social problem and showing sympathy for those who were hurt by it. But then in a lot of places, people began to examine the situation for racial and ethnic minorities in their own countries. And that said to me that citizens all over the world including the U.S., she share a need to rebel when we're forced to confront injustice. For me, it was really the first time that I had seen protests in other countries in support of positive change here in the United States. Certainly, I remember people protesting around the world, but usually it was against a war or action the U.S. had taken on the international stage. What I had not seen was the protest of police violence that had happened in the past. It isn't the first time that protests occurred in Europe or elsewhere when protests occurred in the United States in terms of police brutality. So in Ferguson in 2014, there were also protests in Europe around the same time. I think the protests are broader and bigger than they were in 2014. So why then are these protests pulling in more supporters than they have in the past? Why these protests are a bit broader or larger not only has to do with perhaps the importance of the issue, but also we can't deny the fact that COVID-19 means that a lot of people are at home. A lot of students don't have their programs in summer camps and schooling. And so one of their activity that they've taken up is the cause of protests. While employment is high, there tends to be a higher number of people protesting in the streets. And I don't mean that to say that they're not committed to the cause. Although I know a few high schoolers for which this is a fashion statement, <laughs> but it does mean that they don't have other competing interests or, or competing demands on their time that they can go out and protest. So if COVID-19 is giving more people time to protest, does it not also prevent them from gathering in the streets in the same way, whether it is for health reasons or due to new laws implemented on public gatherings in order to bring down the protests? A lot of movements have taken their arguments online for now. They're tweeting their concerns or posting them on Facebook. But I haven't seen anything that suggests that that's a particularly successful tactic. It does serve to keep the faithful engaged. But I'm not sure how successful it would be in recruiting new adherents to the cause. Uh, I talked to a professor who studies the impact of social media. And she compared it to an echo chamber or, or preaching to the choir. But she also acknowledged that many activists, particularly younger ones, can use those media to achieve remarkable results that many of us, a generation or two older, could scarcely imagine. It would seem, then, that this time is ripe for abuse by governments who are looking to take advantage of the situation to stop protests and give themselves another source of control. Have we seen this happening in countries around the world? In terms of authoritarian leaders taking advantage of social distancing measures they have, you know, most prominent case is Hungary, which adopted an emergency rule, but there isn't any systematic knowledge of which authoritarian leaders are more likely to take advantage of this opportunity or whether it is any more significant than any of the previous tactics that they have been using in the past. So that is yet to be determined. Since many of the prescribed ways to combat COVID-19, social distancing, no large gatherings, etc., 
can also be used to quell protest. Are there any ways that these can be implemented in a responsible manner? The restrictions on public gatherings, monitoring people's movements by tracking their cell phones, those are useful tools for managing the spread of the virus. But unless governments observe strict guidelines for using them, there's a danger that those tactics are going to be abused. They need clarity about the policies and their justification, expiration dates, legislative oversight, and that sort of thing. As the crisis picked up steam and more restrictive regulations were put into place, there was a decline in the number of protests that were out in the street at any given time in the world. Therefore, would we expect to see those numbers pick back up once restrictions are lifted, particularly if the underlying issues have not been resolved? Initially, there was a decline in the number of protests that were ongoing in the world, Hong Kong being the most obvious example where people were just immediately stopped in their tracks and went home for social distancing reasons. And, and protest strategies have declined from having really big mass rallies to areas to small protests that last for very short periods of time and then disappear. So it could result in a change in strategy of protests, not only numbers of protests. But in terms of the data, the data do show that after the initial climb, there was actually an increase. So the ACLID data set, which is a data set that reports daily events worldwide, has shown that the current rate of protest is a 5.6% above the 12-month average of the previous period of time. So there is an increase in numbers of protests, which is was surprising. With the numbers of protests picking back up and 2019 being a banner year for them, how does this fit into the overall trend of protests that we have seen? So you're right, 2019 was a banner year for protests, but the data from my book, which is largely on democracy protests or on anti-government protests, which asks for government leaders to step down, suggests it's not an upward trend in numbers of protests in the last decade, but it's more of peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys throughout history. So if you looked at a graph um, as far back as 1989 to 2011, you'd see that it doesn't look like a gradual slope in the last decade, but it looks more like an EKG chart. The last really big high was in 2011 around the Arab Spring, and there were a large number of events in that period. And then in, in, in 2005, there was a large number of 20 to 30 protests per year. Due to the fact that protests come and go with varying levels of success, how are these movements going to sustain their momentum post-COVID and ensure they meet their goals? So it's a really important question because people are not going to stay in the streets forever. Uh, they're going to go back to the school, their employment, and as well as studies show that longer protests occur, the disruption in the economy, they start to lose support by the general population. And that be the case of Hong Kong. Protests endured for many months, as did the Yellow Vest protesters, but support does decline over time. So in order to sustain pressure on the government, one has to change one's tactics. Um, and that may mean social media, that may be lobbying governments, that may mean running for elected office, as in the case with uh, Me Too movement. So after the Me Too movement in 2008, there was a record number of women running for Congress. And as far as I know now, that the number of women running for Congress exceeds the number in 2018. So to continue pressure on the government, one has to adopt different tactics in order to pressure the government that will have wide support. Speaking of maintaining popular support for movements, the protests for Black Lives Matter were initially marred with violence in the same areas. Does violence and looting have a role to play in protesting, and what impacts, positive or negative, does this have for the stated goals? In fact, violent acts can, and i got to be careful how I phrase this, in some ways does serve the goals of a protest, the drama 
of violence can can attract attention, media attention, in a way that peaceful marches and reasonable speeches just don't. But there's a fine line. When, again, when violence becomes the, the focus, not the conditions that led to the protest in the first place, then it has a deleterious effect. You can't condone violence, of course, even when it's conducted in the context of a, of a protest or a movement that's worthy. In the United States, there is no justification for the violence that we're seeing. Most of the violence really is from a small contingent of protesters that are outside agitators or using the events opportunistically for financial gain. But it's not helpful either. So violence can undermine popular support from protests in the general population. And in this particular case, that it could even fulfill people's negative expectations about African-Americans or Black people being violent by nature. And so it would, would be detrimental in this case to the cause. Back to how the Black Lives Matter protests have been taken up by people around the world. Why has this issue run so true in so many different countries? And how has it morphed into a much larger movement? Initially, they may have began with a, a small group of people wanting to show solidarity for the protesters in the United States. But I think as the protests continued that they protested um, not only to show their support for the protests in the U.S., but because the issue resonated with their own experiences and the demands or posters or placards and statements that people made tailored their experiences to their own countries. Finally, as these protests continue to rise up around the world, what does it mean for the state of democracy today? Should we be worried that there are so many countries where citizens are demanding change? That's part of the question that got me interested in this issue in the first place, because there's a tendency among many people to think that the rash of protests was a sign that democracy was used up, and that it wasn't working, that citizens didn't find it effective, that, that uh, they just gave up on it. But I came to a different conclusion, and it seems to me that the protests just, more than anything, signify an abiding faith in democracy, that a person's voice matters, one person's voice matters, and that a protest is a legitimate way of seeking change change in the way the leaders are dealing with the issues such as social and economic inequality, and that those leaders need to be listening. Protest is a form of voting, and voting is a fundamental element of democracy. So I strongly agree with Bill. I think that protests are a sign of a robust democracy, and then I would worry about the state of democracy if there weren't protests in the world. I mean, protests could be a sign that the normal institutions that are associated with democracy, like the legislature, aren't working, but I think they're simply a different mode of having one's voice heard like the free media is. I want to thank Don and Bill for joining me for this important discussion and sharing their insights. It is vital that we understand that the challenges we face here in the U.S. are seen around the world and vice versa. Very few countries, if any, have been spared the scourge of racial injustice in one way or another. By looking in the mirror and finding ways to be better here in the United States, we can reflect those values out to the world. By not responding appropriately to government violence and human rights issues here in our country, we leave ourselves open for claims of hypocrisy when we admonish others for similar behavior. If the U.S. is truly going to be the shining city on the hill, we need to take on our own challenges in a positive and real way.
Since 2008, Education for All Children has been working to provide education to employment services for vulnerable youth in Kenya. Based out of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, this organization is taking on the global education gap and helping talented youth to create a future all their own. In a country where 50% of students do not make it past the 8th grade, their programs are a powerful way to help build economic stability for this country. When we take one child, we are transforming an entire family and a community. This is Mary Kaguru, Country Director for EFAC since 2016. So the family is able to take care of others. So even if you're only paying for one scholar, it's like we are actually transforming the whole family. Our vision is to see communities being transformed. If a family is transformed, then an entire community is transformed. She joined me from Kenya, along with EFAC Executive Director Blair Demers, who joined us from the organization's headquarters in Portsmouth. It is amazing that there are so many wonderful organizations in New Hampshire that are working directly to make the world a better place. According to Blair, EFAC's mission is to provide an education to employment program for talented, disadvantaged Kenyan youth to foster leadership, economic mobility, and social progress. What that means is that we are working with some of Kenya's brightest minds with the fewest resources to give them an opportunity to stay in school, go to high school, go to college, become employed, and change the trajectory not only of their own lives, but that of their families, their communities, and ultimately their country. The disparities in Kenyan society are stark. According to an Oxfam report, income inequality in the country is out of control. While the number of the super-rich are growing faster in Kenya than in almost any part of the world, the benefits are not trickling down to the lower stratas. 8,300 people in the country have accumulated more wealth than the other 44 million combined. The problem only seems to be getting worse, with nearly 1 million primary school students who are not attending school, and a government that has gradually spent less on education each year. In addition, gender inequality is rampant as well, with economic policy ensuring that women remain on the sidelines. According to the same Oxfam report, while 96% of rural women in Kenya work on farms, only 6% own titles to land. EFAC is working to tackle these challenges head on. We have a gender ratio of two-thirds girls to one-third boys, intentionally, and we select students coming out of eighth grade based on financial need, academic merit, and leadership potential. We get about 600 applicants a year for anywhere between 50 and 100 places in our program. So it's highly selective, and we wish we could serve more students. The need is just tremendous. With so many hurdles, what does it take to ensure the success of these promising young students? The way that we run our program is we provide eight years of programming, which is very unique in the education to employment sector anywhere in the world. We provide a full scholarship to one of Kenya's top high schools. These are all single sex boarding schools across the country. We provide tuition, books, uniform, and transportation so that these students can attend high school for free. Um, we then provide a scholarship from that point to college or university. Again, tuition, laptop, living stipend, 
and other needs so that our students can continue on through their higher education programs. Throughout the eight years, we have a very robust and intensive mentoring component because it takes more than just a scholarship for our young people to be successful in our program and in life. So we have social and emotional mentoring, we have peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, we have professional career counseling, and we have a series of what we call our bridge workshops, which take place annually. They're residential. They are divided by cohort for EFAC scholars. And we work with groups of students on curriculum ranging from leadership and character development to critical thinking and problem solving to soft skills and life skills development. We do financial literacy, we do computer literacy, and we do a lot of career development so that our students are employable and ready for work once they graduate from university. These students are given such a great opportunity to better themselves, their families, and their communities. But how does EFAC instill a sense of responsibility to give back to help others? We have a very intentional and strong community service component to our organization. It's a really part of who we are as an organization and our ethos of giving back. All EFAC scholars, 100% of our students, participate in community service. We have incredible examples of the impact that that is happening throughout Kenya and a lot of data on the ripple effect of an EFAC scholarship because of that. Mary provides a wonderful example of how life-changing this experience is, as well as how these scholars end up giving back. When we got Charity into the program, uh, she was rescued from early marriage. She already had a child in her primary school and the family wanted her married off. The community, you know, they perceived her like any other woman. You're going to get married. You need to get children. You need to start off a family. And so value for education wasn't really a critical element in their family. But the teachers and the mother believed in her. So they were able to keep her in school boarding school and she got the IFAC scholarship. Eight years down the line, Charity has graduated with a degree in law. She's now in the committee in the county government advocating for the rights of girls for education. So she sits in that particular committee. She's working with a human rights organization. She volunteered there for a while and they gave her an opportunity to also work with them for one year. And Charity is also a very key mentor in the program, working with the Maasai girls. The Maasai community generally, what they do is that uh, girls at nine years of age, they are already like betrothed and postponing that is not normally easy, particularly for the father who sees the girl as an asset, that you can get so many cows for a girl. So charity is advocating for the rights of girls to be taken to school and not to be seen as an investment to be sold off for the family to create wealth. Because that's one of the things we really have to fight in Kenya at the grassroots. So charity has become one of the, we can say one of the icons that's going back from the EFAC program to fight for girls not to be married off early and not to be seen as investments for the families. There are many other success stories from this program, as Mary continues to point out. Our program simply picks children that are disadvantaged. They have no hope, and most of the time, they don't know whether their dreams are going to come true. And we can say that those who have successfully gone through the eight-year program, uh, we have 
60% of our scholars integrating in the job market and being able to fend for their families. We have scholars who have started initiatives. We have one that has started a school in her community to address the plight of young people who are not able to access education. What she has learned through mentoring in AFAC and through provision of education is that she can also be able to provide something for her community. So she started a school. Right now she has like 200 kids in the school. So she's responding to the need in her community and has engaged the community to support education. We have scholars who started mentorship programs in their community. We have one where one of the things that define the youth there is idleness, drugs, and so a lot of insecurity. So with the local chief, they started a mentoring program so that they're engaging their youth to see the importance of school. And most of them are going back to school. And what one of the things that also has come out of that is that they started like a mobile monitoring kind of system. So if you feel like you're insecure, then you are able to send a tweet to the chief. So the chief is now called the tweeting chief, but it was started by two of our scholars, a very fast cohort. Uh, right now we have some of our scholars, like we have one who is our IT and data manager in our office. We have one who is dealing with our finance. So we are seeing themselves, transforming themselves and being able to support their families. We've been thinking of them being change makers. And we are seeing these changes happening right in the community. In this season, we have also seen most of them participating in changing their own families, even those who are still in school, those who have not graduated, that are fending for their families. They've taken up initiatives like selling things online, like vegetables and supplying all that. And our hope is that with the 600 we have, we are going to be transforming three times more within the next two years. As with any program these days, one cannot forget about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it is affecting the lives of billions of people. Earlier this month, the president of Kenya started to relax several restrictions that were put in place back in March, despite a rise in cases. According to a July 6th report by the Voice of America, there were 7,886 cases in the country with 160 deaths. At the time, they were experiencing 300 new cases per day. As of July 20th, according to a Reuters article, that number had almost doubled to over 13,000 cases and 234 deaths. Well, for one thing, it's affected and changed everything in the country. That means there's a lot of insecurity because a lot of young people are now idle. They are not in college, they are not in school, uh, they don't have means to support themselves. So they're finding themselves with a lot of time and nothing to do with that particular time. So there's a lot of insecurity. Uh, it affects us in a lot of ways because now we have all our scholars back home. The ones in college, of course, are getting engaged learning online, but the ones in high school are home. There are many dangers in that. For one, they face being exposed to vices in the community. We have gangsters, we have domestic violence, we have girls being insecure, being married. You know, like most of our girls come from communities where you're married off early. Now these six months, there are people seeing you around and thinking it's time to marry you off. Could be earning us a living by doing something. There are all those insecurities. So it's made us think more about how we can invest more on remote support for our scholars, making sure that they are engaged, they are motivated. Because when they're in school, one thing is that they, they are kept focused by being in a community. Now, being isolated from this particular community, they are vulnerable. 
how do we make sure that we still address that um, that particular element that they still feel they are in a community they are supported and they are motivated to continue learning remotely because classes are still going on they are being sent work so one thing that EFAC did uh, with the support from our US office was to ensure that uh, our scholars are provided for with data bundles so we've been holding online webinars where we are discussing about issues affecting us and also coming up with things that we can do together. Those who are able to engage in something, they're teaching each other, what can you be able to do to engage yourself? If you're facing challenges in your community, then how can you address them? If someone in the team has addressed them, then they can share all that. So they are learning with each other and from each other. And we're also having mentors coming online. For the high school, we provided them with smartphones to ensure that they are able to access learning like any other child in the country, because those who are able, they can continue learning online using their smartphones. So we've provided that for them. But also this smartphone provides for us an opportunity to ensure that they can share their fears. And we are able to address through mentors these particular fears. If a girl feels insecure, she can text, she can inform somebody and somebody can try to help her and address various issues. The things they think are a challenge, they share on the platform and you're able to provide whatever support we can remotely. They also stay connected to us. So whatever we are able to handle, we are, we are handling that. So it's changed our focus being, I think we, we moved immediately to online support for all of them. It was possible to do that with the, with the ones who are in, in their post-secondary institutions because they had smartphones. It's taken us a while with the high schoolers, we could only reach them through their guardians and through SMSs. But we have kept that. We call and we SMS. So we changed everything to online. We have held uh, webinars like every other week with them to debrief on what they're going on, for them to share amongst us, uh, themselves and to develop that community of support among our scholars. It's worth noting that the Kenya Ministry of Education recently announced that all schools would remain closed for the rest of 2020. So in January of 2021, they are restarting the school year afresh. So every student from kindergarten through 12th grade in Kenya has to repeat the grade that they were supposed to be in for 2020. One question that is commonly heard in the international development realm is, why, when there are so many issues here in the U.S., should we be spending our dollars abroad? Of course, the answer is that this is not a binary choice. We can do both. This is not an organization that's asking U.S. donors and supporters to choose between U.S. needs and global Kenyan or African needs. We are encouraging people to think about being global philanthropists. We have a lot of needs locally here in our country, and I would say that all of us at EFAC, including every one of our donors, is engaged in some way in supporting those U.S. and local needs. And when you give to EFAC, you're guaranteed that your money is going someplace where we care deeply about the success of our work. And we can tell you exactly how these students are doing. You know, the Gates Foundation has done a lot of work on the continent of Africa. And right now, it, for the foreseeable future, Africa is their primary focus. And the reason for that is that by 2050, it's estimated that 86% of the world's poor will live on the continent of Africa. 
They also are the only continent in the world that has a population of youth that is growing. And the vast majority of young people will be living on the continent of Africa in the next 30 years. And if there's not an investment in that population of youth, if there's not an investment in poverty reduction on the continent, if we don't find ways to give opportunities to all of these very talented, high potential young people to change their trajectory of their continent, then the whole world stands to suffer. I want to give the final word to Mary, who captures the power of this program beautifully. We feel more privileged that Americans would choose to support an African, someone they really don't know. And we have appreciated the fact that they could have chosen to support anyone else, but they chose to support Kenya and to see the need that the Kenyans have to make a change even in the world. It may be a very small drop in the ocean, but it has made a significant impact in the lives of so many people here. Actually changed families, whatever it is that the US people are investing. They have invested in lives and transformed so many people. Thank you again for joining us here on the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire's Global in the Granite State podcast. We hope you found today's interviews enlightening and informative. Please do leave us a review and any comments you may have on this or future programs. Also, please consider supporting this podcast by donating to the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire at www.wacnh.org or by texting WACNH to 44321.